0: If you're one of those who like to take, take notes uh, from a sermon, let me give you the big idea before we start. Love requires humility. I mean, love is a winsome thing. Love is somewhat like a painting, like an object. It's like if we see it one dimensionally, everyone would look at it and say, well, that's, that's beautiful. But but for us, as, as Christ's bride, his church, love requires uh, demeanor and it's humility As we've been working our way through this series of Jesus' life that love walked among us, we've seen an ever-expanding picture of love, haven't we? As we encounter story after story after story, and the whole goal, by the way, isn't just to put on a piece of paper how Jesus loved. It was to be so moved by the story of Jesus that we emulate the love of Christ as we treat each other, right? So if we're doing this for no other reason than just to gain information, let's all go have a hot dog, but if we want to do this right, then we have to actually ask God to work in us, sift us, and form us into the image of Jesus so that we love like him. That's the whole point of this journey together, all right? Um, If we were to just kind of share how we feel about the last two months of Love Walked Among Us, I'm certain we'd have maybe a variety of of takes on it, but I'm going to just fill in the blanks for us. I I think our our experience with this has been, at a minimum, very motivating. Like the way I feel, hearing the particulars of how Jesus loved, I look at it and go, Wow, that's that's amazing and that's winsome. And and this reality of it of how The action of love itself is demonstrated to us. So we've taken a look at at how love actually sees and notices people and moves with compassion in action towards the things that it sees. It riles itself for righteousness sake and it flows from dependence of God. And like we saw last week with the woman at the well, it is is a, a kind of love that pursues and then provides, and in Jesus' case to us, provides the ultimate satisfaction of the human heart, the longing of the human heart. If you're like me, and I hope I hope that at least we share this in common, every step of the way, looking at the love of Jesus, I reflect on my own experience of being loved by Jesus that way. Like if I remove everybody else from the story and I go, it's just me and Him, and He's loved me that way, I, I get more and more won over. To that, I'm very grateful that he decided to do all those things for me in it. And to be fair, it does motivate me to turn that affections I've received towards other people. That, that's kind of an organic, natural thing. Perhaps you've been through this series and you've considered ways or maybe people or people groups. You go, I want to I love them like that. I, this particular aspect of Jesus' love and the way he demonstrated it, I want to go into my world, into my job, into my school or my neighborhood. And I want to put that on display as well because I'm a recipient of that from Christ. So I, I want to reflect that. And so I guess in a way we could say our series so far, in more grand than this, but I'm just going to say it like this, so far so good. Been really good. It's been very winsome to paint the picture of Christ's love. Now, the reason why I want to tell you that is because we're about to take a left turn. Uh, Take the so so far so good, wonderful depiction of how we receive Christ. We should probably reflect it. We're going to talk about the problem of love today. And you might have heard it this way the cost of love. When we get into the expense of it or the problem of it, that's when people start to bail on the idea of love and loving like Christ. Everyone, by the way, and I think I speak for all of us, we love the picture of hallmark love don 't we? when the commercial comes on, you see a gift, you see a you see a smile, a kind deed of friendship and and if it, if it 's k jewelers, every kiss begins with a k a diamond money, whatever they 're trying to say, it begins with something, um, but for the church, the greatest statement of love is so much more complicated than just, "Hey, smile." And just be kind and do a deed and go on your merry way. The version of biblical love as Christ loved us is so much more than just a drive-by action, which, by the way, happens to be the predominant way in which the church is known for its love in the world. Come in, drop off, split. Am I fair? I'm not judging it. I think, I think we don't want that to quit. But there's so much more depth to it, so much more cost to it. It's the problem of love. Um, we're going to see that the reality of love, if you're going to include a, a complete definition, love truly is wearing the sufferings of others. And this is where I confess, I'm 57, I get really tired of wearing sufferings of others. And nevertheless, that's where we're going. So the next three weeks, we're going to get closer and closer to the cross. We're going to see um, Jesus facing death. We're going to go from the garden to Gethsemane. We're going to see this wonderful substitutionary atonement of Jesus on the cross for sinners and righteousness granted. We're going to go all the way to Easter looking at the higher and higher expense of, of love, the kind of love that is truly, truly is wearing the sufferings of others. But I want us, at least before we start digging into this small little narrative, to understand that the connecting tissue between the actions of love, those versions of drive-by love, just drop it off and leave, and actually wearing the problems of others and the sufferings of others, this idea of the problem of love, the connected tissue between those actions and actually getting in the mess is this thing called humility. Humility. So we need to work on this because what we're going to discover in how Jesus goes on to love is that he gets smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller to the point which he gets treated as if he's the worst of the worst sinner bearing the sufferings of others paul miller says love and humility are inseparable So let's look at this, as always, the example that we look at is Jesus. These two passages, Luke 22 and John 13, all take place in the upper room, the Last Supper that Jesus has with his disciples before he marches off to the cross willingly to give his life a ransom for many. The Last Supper, by the way, happens to be one of the most amazing events in history, I think. Theologians call it the upper room discourse in John's narrative. Uh, So much happens in that section of scripture, it's hard to really um, actually communicate in one little sentence what's all there. All, by the way, four gospel writers mention it. All of them deal with it, although not in the quantity that John does. In, In Matthew's gospel, chapter 26, he gives 19 total verses to what happens in the upper room. Um, You have Mark, who gives a total of 20 verses, and Luke gives a total of 25 verses. John, however, does five full chapters and 160 verses written on what takes place when the disciples gather in the upper room when Jesus uh, begins to lead them to his suffering. Uh, Talk about your amazing dinners. This is it. Let me just fly over all that takes place in this one little moment for Jesus and the disciples. In this very familiar passage in John, we see Jesus predicting the betrayal of Judas. We see Jesus predicting the failure and the rejection of Peter, his denial. And in it, he preaches some profound sermons, sermons that include the new commandment to love. In it, he includes um, that the only way to the Father is through him, the way, the truth, and life, the ex- exclivity of Jesus, no other option. In this wonderful uh, section in the upper room, he talks about the coming of the Holy Spirit and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. He talks about him being the vine and we're the branches and if we're gonna, uh, if we're gonna survive this thing and thrive in this thing, we have to be absolutely abiding in him, living in him. He talks about overcoming the world. In John, it records for us the high priestly prayer. In chapter 17, what Jesus wants for us, for his church. It also gives us the sacrament of communion. Luke records for us, and this is going to be part of our narrative today. He records for us an argument. He's the only one that does. An argument takes place between the disciples. And then in John 13, it records for us, I think, and I think in the order here, it provides for us Jesus' response and teaching to that silly argument. So much in this, in this upper room discourse, okay? Let, let's do this. Let's just read these two sections very short, and uh, we'll start plowing our way through what God has for us today. So in Luke chapter 22, we're going to read 24 through 27, and uh, again, I think these two narratives would fit together in context and in order. Um, So here's how it goes. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, that's Jesus, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader is one who serves. For who is greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as one who serves. Look at John 13, verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around, around him. As a parent, you've experienced, uh, I think, what Jesus is dealing with here. Sometimes you plan the lessons you teach your children, and sometimes those lessons find you. You just kind of get interrupted. I think Jesus, when he came to the upper room, had an entire agenda, of which we see in John's gospel, chapter 13, of all that he was about to teach them for reasons that are obvious to us they're about to experience the loss of their Messiah. They were about to experience their teacher dying and he wanted to prep them for that horrendous event. I think he was also in that moment trying to really sink roots deep in them of his love and affection for them. He was planting a deposit of truth in their minds so that when he's gone and they're having to deal with the future and the suffering that comes from following Christ, that they had all sorts of an account filled with truth that they could respond to those things. In this wonderful moment, Jesus is telling them, I am the Passover lamb. Everything you've waited for, everything you've been pointing to, I'm the fulfillment of. And so you just see so much depth in what Jesus is doing. But like I said, um, sometimes the lessons find you. Before he can even get started, the disciples break out into an argument about who's the greatest. By the way, don't ever have this argument, all right? Jesus immediately then, after he hears this argument, starts to teach them in John's gospel about the issue of the pursuit of greatness. In other words, you want to talk about greatness? You really going to have this debate? Well, let me teach you about greatness. Uh, by, by the way, th- this, this event of this argument isn't new to the disciples. This has happened multiple times in Mark's uh, gospel chapter 9 and Luke in chapter 9, Matthew chapter 20. We see very similar, almost strikingly exactly the same kind of experiences with them arguing about great. I mean, John and James' mother was the one who initiated one of them and said, hey, listen, let's fight for position, left hand, right hand, and that, you know that whole story. But nevertheless, they're going back to this over and over again, trying to establish some sense of human greatness in this story, Okay. So it's most likely that right after that argument broke out, Jesus stands, strips off his outer garment, ties a slave apron around his waist, and stoops down to wash the dirtiest parts of a human. He's painting a picture of exactly the opposite of what these guys were arguing about. Greatness. So, if we simply take the squabble that we read in uh, Luke... And then Jesus washing the feet in John. This is not a very long passage. We've only read seven verses. And to be honest, it's not very complicated. Very, very simple to see. Very simple to understand. If I were to paraphrase what we've seen or what Jesus was trying to get at, he would be maybe something like this. You got, you got greatness all wrong. Greatness is serving. And I suppose we could leave here and go, go out and eat in the courtyard if that's all there is to it. But if the lessons are that obvious and that easy how come this is so hard to do? Why do disciples argue about it multiple times? Why is the version of service that Jesus continually comes back to, why is it so brutally hard for anybody to get? I want to take some time before we get into maybe some promises, I think, that are in the Scriptures to us and deal with why I think it's so difficult. Jesus' whole life, by the way, you know this with his disciples was a visual of everything he was talking about. Every version of love. He just lived it every day. So they should be without excuse. They should not be where they're at, arguing about greatness, watching Jesus serve the way he did. He taught them over and over and over again. And yet here we are, the boys are at it again. They just won't stop. They keep fighting over this thing. Now, let me suggest to you a, a few reasons why. Uh, one, it said it's a heart issue. Two, there is a head issue, and three, there is a world issue, all at play for all of these lessons about humble, taking on the suffering, another kind of love, all right? First of all, let me show you that it's a heart issue. Um, One of the ways, and you're familiar with this language, one of the ways that sin is described for all of us is that sin is a blinder right? Sin blinds us. It blinds us to God. It blinds us to the gospel. It blinds us to our own issues. It blinds us to needs. It just, it just puts a cloud over our vision we can't perceive very much at all, okay? And it's interesting, if, if I were to hand you this text, let's say you've never read it before, and I go, read this section on them arguing about the greatness. There's not a single person in here, I really believe this, who wouldn't look at that section and go, well, that's just ridiculous, Who would argue about being the greatest? What an arrogant thing to do. What a bad thing. And what seems so apparent in a written narrative like that to us, it's almost impossible to see things like that in ourselves. It's like it's so easy. Like how sermons work typically. We hear sermons and we go, I hope John's here for that one. Right? (laughs) I hope my husband hears this. I, I hope that guy catches the drift. Because we're so good at taking the reflectors of the spiritual truth and seeing the need everywhere, but where? So, so there's this blindness we have to our own need and our own condition. Um, and here's what's even more absurd about this whole story. Jesus has just completed in Luke chapter 22 the instruction on the Lord's Supper. He is painting the picture of his suffering and his gift that brings life and grace to sinners, okay? Profound, am I right? profound stuff, and in the middle of him doing that narrative, almost to the end of this, right, Jesus stops and then says to his disciples, verse 21, and behold, the hand of him who betrays me is at the table. Now, if you're a disciple and you're sitting around the table, this round table, leaning on your left elbow with your feet away from it, everyone intensely looking at each other's eye, my assumption is you would stop there for a second and do a little personal triage, you might just for a moment go, man, I wonder I wonder if it could be me. <laughs> Didn't happen at all. They begin to argue about who else it was. You know, and, and maybe they got close. Maybe we all know the story. It was Judas he was referring to. But let's be really honest. None of these disciples finished the next 24 hours very well, did they? Jesus gets arrested. And they all run for the hills. Peter, what did he do? Denial multiple times to a place where he cowered in front of a little girl. Here's what I guess I'm trying to say. The reason why is because sin affects us deeply, so deeply that we'd much more um, see the problem in someone else. We'd, we'd much rather pursue a discussion on our greatness and never want a discussion about smallness or obscurity or bearing the suffering of another. That, that conversation isn't mine. In my blindness. Sin blinds us to such a degree that the upside down rule that Jesus described here for us really sounds foolish. It makes no sense. You want to be great? Be small. Where does that work? Anywhere. So natural man, blind man would look at the, what Jesus is offering and say, well, that's just a joke. That's just a, a silly thing. It's a heart issue. That's why there's a blindness. There's a spiritual blindness to us. Regardless of whether you look at this story and go, well, That's silly you would never perceive the silly in you. So let's just start there, heart issue. Second thing, it's a head issue. And here's what I mean by that. We don't know how to think about humility. We don't really know how to process humility because we confuse humility with a lesson to learn, like like information to gather versus a process to being made humble. So here's what I'm trying to say. If I unpacked every stop in the Scriptures on how the gospel writers or the epistles describe humility. We could make a lesson out of it. We could make bullet points. We could sit down and study. And would your head knowledge grow? Yes, you would. You would certainly gather truth. And that's, that's reality. But I want to suggest to us today that the greatest leaps of our becoming humble comes through a process I'm going to call Humiliation. And if you're an English major, that's the wrong use of that word. I don't care. I'm going to take that word and I'm going to keep it because it's the point I'm trying to make, all right? Um, Every one of us will learn to be small primarily through the experience of failure. I I can't bring you to the table and go, here's being humble. Let's all put on humbleness. And you go, okay, I'm just going to be small today. No, you and I, all sinners, we run into life thinking we're better than we are only to have God go, well, you're really not. And what you thought you would never do, you do. And who you think you really are, you're not. And and truly, truly, the older you get, the more worn out you are coming to the realization that you're nothing you ever thought you were and nothing you ever were kind of running against. You're just that person. And it happens the hard way. I'll give you an example. In in John 13, our text even for this morning, right after Jesus takes off the outer garment, puts on the slave apron, he's making his way around the circle, washing feet, painting a picture of selfless service and humility. He gets to Peter and Peter goes, not on my watch. You are not washing my feet, no way, no how. You remember this? And Peter, who some say is almost always known for only opening his mouth to change feet, he continues this whole concept of of talking a game he can't play. And even when Jesus gets to, hey, Peter, by the way, you're gonna deny me. And before the day's over, three times, and he said, not me, not on my watch. Will never happen. I'm for you. I'm with you. And again, a little girl says, hey, aren't you a follower? And he cowers. Big, tough guy, Peter. So you tell me, how did he feel? Jesus was arrested and hauled off to a phony trumped up trial and he's in the courtyard of the high priest being questioned and accused of things he's not guilty of and didn't open his mouth. And they're dropping charges and dropping charges and Peter's following around in the background just keeping an eye on his savior. And as he does, a couple of girls... Another person come up and say, aren't you one of his? Aren't you a follower of his? And he keeps saying, no, not me, not me. And on the third time, when he's questioned by a girl, do you belong to him? He says, no. And the rooster crows. And the text tells us that Jesus turns from the attention of the arrest and he sees Peter, looks him in the eye, and the text says that Peter wept bitterly and ran away. What is that? Well, I'm just using words of that experience. Let's say Shame, humiliation. How about failure and exposure, all the things he's dealing with? So, you know this, sin affects us to the point we we don't want to be humble. We will not see it unless like Peter didn't see it in him. And wrong thinking about humility will also limit our growth in humility. So if we consider this just some lesson to learn, some information to gather, and we don't embrace the process of God going, there it is again. You will, you will never, ever, ever perceive God growing you in this process. So let me just encourage you not just to br- embrace the idea of humility, embrace the process in being made humble. In fact, I think Peter got there. He writes in First Peter, Clothe yourself, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but give grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at a proper time he may exalt you. Did Peter learn the lessons Jesus said, or did he learn from the humiliation of finding out he's not what he thought he was? Pastor Tom uh, Schrader, who founded this church, used to say, "Everyone likes the idea of being a servant until they're treated like one." I suppose that's how we learn humility and love. I got, can I serve anywhere? Yeah. Can I treat you like a servant? Oh no, let's not go there. Let me let me add to the reasons why this is difficult for us, uh, and I'm calling it a world issue. And here's what I mean. Humility in our world is like a toy boat trying to go against the rapids. It's so brutally hard. There is so much opposition and there is no company. The tide of culture wants to push you back into its direction and the direction of the culture is be great. They would love this argument the disciples are having about who's the greatest because that's what that's what our culture does. In fact, if you take in mind and keep in mind rather... Jesus saying this concept that humility frees us to serve and he demonstrates it by washing feet, um, then you know that's just not how it works in our world. Just compare and contrast what Jesus says to how it works in the world. In fact, John, when he was talking um, in 1 John 2 about where your affections should lie, and he simply goes after this world version. He says, Don't love the world, nor the things in the world, because here's what the world looks like. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Everything in the world is stuck on self. Don't love the world. Don't love its narrative. Don't love its options. Don't love its way because it's all the wrong way. Don't love the world. And, and you know this. I mean, everything. I mean, just let's be honest. Every bit of your living life Nobody tells you this, but this is how it works. You're working your tail off to get to the place so you don't have to serve anybody. You're young, you got nothing. And somebody says, well, you're an idiot. Go get a job and mop the floor. And you go, well, I guess I got to mop the floor. But you're hoping someday to be the boss to tell somebody to mop the floor. And you're climbing ladders and moving and moving and shaking. And someday you want to have enough money in your pocket so you can just lay around and spend it on yourself. You're trying to work yourself to a place you don't have to serve anybody. And Jesus' example for us is he worked his entire life to get to suffering. All the way to the cross. The example of Christ for us, the truly on taking on the sufferings of others, means that he goes all the way to death. Is it making sense in your mind? The way of Christ? Humility, love that bears the suffering of others and all the other options. And all the other options have one thing in common. They're about loving us, ourselves. Um, So, I don't have to tell you that culture is broken, um, that it sells this whole concept of how we live our life to make a big deal out of yourself, whether it's true or not. Pretending is an absolute national pastime, now grow your brand, boast about your accomplishments, and, and make them up. You want to look recently in our culture, this college admission scandal, uh, why would anybody spend millions of dollars to fake an education? Why don't you just give the million dollars to the kid and say, have a great life? Why would you do that? For one reason, because the status of a college degree that isn't even real is greater than just being who you are. So our system doesn't like honesty and it doesn't like humility. And let me just say, humility in in our world's economy affects more than just what we think. The the, the most beautiful part, I think, um, if not one of them, of the gospel picture is how God got in the mess to sympathize with us. I've said this before, um, I think... This is true. He could, he, he could have redeemed any way he wanted, being God. But of the version of, of redemption that he did, he said, I'm going to get in the mess all the way up to my eyeballs. Paul said it this way. Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped but he emptied himself by taking the form of servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in the human form he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on the cross. Sympathizing. There isn't a single burden, weight, struggle that he hasn't known higher than you. He he knew the temptation of sin without sin he knew the weight of being accused. He knew the issue of hunger and suffering for righteousness' sake. He was shamed publicly, and I could go on and on again. He, he knows. He really, t- truly knows. And, and let me just say this. Do you realize that Jesus, the action of Jesus standing up and tying on a slave's apron removes every excuse you and I have to saying, I can't love, sacrificially. I can't love bearing another's suffering. He takes it away. I know you know this. Jesus is the king of glory. He spoke into nothing and created all that there is. By the power of his word, he holds it all together. He is the great I am. He is the redeemer and he is the judge. He is all those things. And our redeemer, our great I am, decides to act and live out servanthood. Suffer under it at the greatest way. So you cannot sit here this morning and go, Well, I'm too old to love like that. I'm too young to love like that. I'm too rich. I'm too poor. I'm too whatever. You cannot stand before God and say, that kind of selfless, jumping into someone else's suffering kind of love, nah, it's not me. I don't have what it takes. If the king of glory can do it, it is our example to follow. No excuses, right? Okay. So, When Jesus invites us into a relationship with him, he invites us to loving others, and the only way to truly love others, according to the picture he paints in this narrative, get this, stooping low. Stooping low. Paul Miller said it this way, uh, you and I can feel really safe in the low places because God lives in the low places. I love that picture. That's where he found me. Can I get an amen? Did you share that? Yeah. Let, let me finish with this idea. A couple, a couple thoughts. I got lots, but I don't have time. I want us to embrace humility because it's where grace is. Solomon is the one who actually conceived of this sentence or this idea, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. James and Peter both repeat that truth. So let me just ask you simple questions. How many of you, be really honest, raise your hand, Want the grace of God, okay, How many of you want the opposition of God? I figured that 's how you would react um, i don 't know how this works but but this: none of us deserve grace. Some of you are better than others, and as we compare ourselves horizontally, but compared to the holy standard of God, we all fall short there is There is nobody that stands on their own two legs with God. So we come to God in this grace, this unmerited favor that God extends to us, to the person of Jesus by faith. That's how people are converted um, and born again. But we live in grace. Every day, every minute, every moment, I want the grace of God. And here's how these things connect. If I choose to have an argument with myself about how great I am or how important I am and I, I refuse to tie on the slave apron to get into the suffering of another, then here's what he promises. He's coming. And not like a judge because he poured out his wrath on the cross for those who trust him. He's coming like a dad, Okay? When the boys are arguing in the bedroom, he's going to straighten it out. He's going to make it right. Knock your heads together. He's going to discipline you, the text says. I don't want the opposition of God. It's like, how low can you go? Just keep going lower because down deep, deep, deep is grace. Can I get an amen? Let me give you one other thing. Embrace humility because it's where greatness is. That's kind of our text this morning. Let me, let me read another version of this argument in Matthew's gospel where he says, but Jesus called them and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. I want to make certain you just heard what he said, okay? Jesus isn't changing the way people become great. He's changing the definition of greatness. If you just look at the narrative that Jesus just said and go, oh, Oh, he's just showing us a shortcut to becoming great, what I always wanted in the long run. That's not what he's saying. He's taking that vision of of being important or having your worth wrapped up in anything you are, and he's saying, no, 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 we're going the opposite direction, completely away from this. Uh, Just my observations of my own life, maybe you share this. Sometimes I serve at a distance. sometimes I serve because I feel bad you, know, you see something and I'm not dead my heart's still there and I see something on move but I'm so afraid of having my heart not know what to do with it that I keep my distance anybody share that and so what happens is we do drive by actions of love which I'm not I'm not judging as stupid or bad or let's stop those things we're just going along our way, but we kind of, in our fear, drop off a version of love so we can keep our distance. I want to suggest to you that Jesus didn't keep his distance. And I'm not saying those little snippets of, of drive by love isn't good, but if we're not careful and convicted, our love will look more like that than, than the suffering kind of love, the painful kind of love, the problem of love, which is what Jesus examples for us. It's like I've seen these in stores, these keyboards they sell that have song programs in them, and they're supposed to be teacher keyboards, and you hit the button, and the keyboard lights up the keys where you're supposed to put your fingers. You ever seen one of these things? Yeah, I I suppose if you hit the button that you can plunk out the notes, but you're never going to play music. It's kind of like The church, when it has a tendency to drop off love in places and get out of dodge. Yeah, I suppose there are actions of love, but you're never going to play the music of walking in the suffering of another unless we get in the mess and go lower and lower and lower. The king of glory tied on suffering. He tied on service at the deepest level. So I told you when we started, yeah, the love of Christ as we experience is winsome, 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 beautiful, beautiful. Of course, I'll do that. But as we work our way through this holy week and we see Christ do more and more of bearing up under the weight of sin, you and I are going to be pressed to recoll- recollect this idea of love that we're talking about today. I'd, I can't go to bed at night and sleep well thinking that I've done my duty because they dropped it off. I simply ask the question God, am I in the mess? Am I getting close to bearing the suffering of another? That's your kind of love. In fact, again, Philippians 2, it was Paul who told us that the results of Christ making himself nothing, the result of that was the glory of God the Father. So you, you know what's at stake now, right? Yeah, the people who are the least of these, they need love, but the, gl- the glory of God is at stake. And according to Paul, when, when Jesus put it, on the lowest level like that, taking on the form of a servant unto death, it reflected in the brightest way possible, God. Loving in such a way that the only thing that catches the light is God. That's what he calls the church to, amen? Amen, let's, let's ask his help. Lord, I pray for us this morning that we would uh, embrace the kind of love uh, that Jesus loved us with, And I will confess uh, right now that the challenge for us will be that many of us, most of us, all of us need lessons in humility um, to be able to suffer with others. So God, all we can do is ask and let your spirit work in us and through us, all of it for one reason, to glorify you. So God, help us in the name of Christ we pray, amen.